Let me get this thing going. Acts chapter 9. We have been making our way through the book of Acts uh, this semester uh, in our study of the book. Uh, And so tonight we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19, the passage that was just read. It's hard to believe that we're actually, it's March the 20th. We're well into the month of March, and March can only mean one thing for me. Anybody know what it is? There you go, March Madness. That's exactly right. March Madness, for those that know me well, know that, and if you don't know, one of the things you need to know is I'm a huge basketball fan. I always have been. I know I'm in the South, and I'm in football country, uh, but I love uh, college basketball in particular, uh, and I love March Madness. It's probably my favorite month out of all of the year of this period, of these last two weeks, and then into, I mean, does it get much better than the NCAA tournament, and then the next weekend, the Masters? I mean, come on. Uh, But I'm not the only one that's fascinated with March Madness. It's our country is fascinated. I mean, the president came out today with his bracket, his final four picks. People that have nothing to do with college basketball, that know nothing about it, oftentimes during this time of year will fill out a bracket. What's the fascination with March Madness? Let me suggest, there's probably many things, but I think part of the fascination with March Madness is we are drawn into and fascinated by the seemingly unlikely and impossible things in the world. What do I mean by that? Well, if you have been watching these sports channels, ESPN, in the last couple of days, and if you start watching tomorrow through the weekend, all they will be talking about is what? The Cinderella stories. Who are the Cinderella stories that are going to emerge in this tournament? People will be glued to their TV sets looking for the unlikely heroes and the unlikely schools to emerge and make a run in the NCAA tournament. Why? Because we are fascinated with the seemingly unlikely things in the world happening. I mean, I found myself today, Ole Miss is a 12 seed, and I've been daydreaming all week. I have. What if? What if Ole Miss gets ridiculously hot and makes a run all the way to the Final Four? It's possible. And I find myself thinking about that. Why? Well, because we're fascinated and drawn into these unlikely stories. Well, I want to suggest that's exactly the same thing that's happening in Acts chapter 9. Over the years, Acts chapter 9 has been a very famous passage in Christianity. People are captivated with it. People are drawn into this story and fascinated by it. Why? Because in this passage, the most likely man that's ever walked the face of the earth is converted to Christianity. In the book of Acts, we have been studying and looking how the gospel in Christianity has been plowing down the religious establishment. Tonight in Acts chapter 9, we see that the gospel comes and topples the religious establishment's golden boy. A man by the name of Saul. Now you need to know that tonight, the man named Saul, later in the Bible, takes on the name of Paul. The Apostle Paul, who wrote two-thirds 
of the New Testament. And so please forgive me. I'm probably most certainly going to do this a lot. I'm going to use the name Saul, and I'm going to use the name Paul, and you just need to know from the very beginning that those are interchangeable, that I'm talking about the same person. Before we dig in, let me pray, and we'll look at our passage. Father, we come uh, from spring break, and we gather together again, and we thank you for bringing us back together tonight. Uh, We pray that this time would be meaningful. Uh, Pray that you would be present here, because unless you come and work in our hearts and work through the preaching of your word, um, then this is really pointless. And so we beg of you to come and to teach us through this passage. Uh, We beg of you to come and to show us the good news of the gospel of grace through Acts chapter 9. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What's interesting is as I have been studying this passage, one of the things I quickly learned is that this passage, this conversion, is, has more ink, there's more ink and press spilled on the conversion of the Apostle Paul than any other conversion in the entire New Testament. It's actually mentioned three times alone in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, and Acts chapter 26. All of those, Paul tells the story of his conversion. Now, I know the word conversion uh, can make some of you uh, uneasy. It's particularly uh, makes people nervous that maybe are outside Christianity because they believe it kind of sounds narrow-minded and wrong uh, for you to convert anyone to your religion. But I want to also suggest that it makes people nervous inside the church as well. Well, what do I mean by that? Well, inevitably, when you start having conversations about conversion, one of the first things that people start asking is they start saying, well, am I converted? Have I really been converted? Uh, And am I really a Christian? Should I be a Christian? I can't tell you the number of times over the course of my eight years of doing campus ministry that I have had students come to me and feel incredibly insecure about their conversion. Why do they feel insecure? Because they say, Jason, there's just, there was no fireworks. I see something like the Apostle Paul and this dramatic event take place and that just has not happened in my life. And it makes me feel insecure about my conversion. I didn't have the fireworks. And in fact, I've never known a time in my life that I didn't know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. Is that valid? How do I know whether I have had an authentic conversion? Here's the difficulty with conversion accounts in the Bible. They're so diverse. You ever thought about how diverse the accounts of conversion in the Bible are? You've got conversions that are quiet. You've got conversions that are dramatic, like we see here in Acts chapter 9. Some seem abrupt and sudden. Some seem to take place over time. We even see in Luke chapter 1 that John the Baptist is actually converted in his mother's womb. What's my point? Well, the point is that there is a danger in us taking one conversion in the Bible and say, look at this, this is how it should be, and this is what it looks like. 
This is the standard of conversion. That's dangerous because the conversions in the Bible are so diverse. And so what do we do? Well, I want to make a suggestion. Instead of thinking of conversion in terms of patterns and steps and experiences, it's better for us to think of conversions more as elements. And what I mean by that is let's rather think of certain elements that must be present if you've really been converted. I think that's more a healthy approach as we look at the Bible. And in Acts chapter 9, we see three elements that must be present if you are to be converted. What are those elements? Well, if you see your outline, elements are collision. Yeah, three C's, I know. Don't beat me up too bad. Collision, conviction, and community. Collision, conviction, and community. Let's look at number one, collision. Look at verses three through five. You know, oftentimes, some of us particularly are so familiar with the Bible, we've grown up thinking about the Bible and reading stories like this and other stories that are familiar and famous in the Bible, and it's easy to just kind of overlook them and not really get into the scene and into the story and realize either how absurd or I think in this case how humorous some of the stories are if you really look at them closely. I mean, look at this story really closely. Paul is walking on the road to Damascus. He's minding his own business. And then all of a sudden, a bright light comes out of heaven, knocks him to the ground. It is so powerful that not only does it knock him down, that it actually blinds him. And as he's lying there, he hears a voice come out of heaven that says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, think about this. You leave here tonight after RUF, and you're going back to your dorm or wherever it is you live, and let's say you go past the library, past the union, and you cut up through the grove, and as you're doing so, someone comes and shines a huge spotlight, very bright, into your face, so bright that it temporarily blinds you, And then they knock you down to the ground and they stand over you and say, why are you persecuting me? (laughs) What would you say? Well, you would probably say exactly what we see Saul saying here. What? What do you mean, why am I persecuting you? You're the one that knocked me down. Who are you? I don't know you. I don't even know who you are. Who are you? Well, that's what Saul said, isn't it? And then notice the response. I am Jesus, the one that you are persecuting. I mean, can't you just hear Saul saying, even in that statement, in his mind, in his heart, saying, no, no. I'm not persecuting you. I'm persecuting them. These Christians that are in Damascus. It's as if Jesus is saying this. Saul, here's lesson one about Christianity. My people are so connected to me, are so close to me, 
We are so much in union together. We are so connected and so intimate with one another that when you persecute them, you're persecuting me. You see, this, friends, is the foundation and the basis for everything else that Paul eventually teaches in his ministry. I mentioned earlier, he wrote two-thirds of the New Testament, and we see this theme over and over and over. You'll see it in phrases like this in the Bible. Jesus died, therefore we died with him. Ever seen that in the Bible? Jesus was buried in baptism and we were buried with him. Romans chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 2. Jesus was raised and we were raised with him. Jesus was seated in the heavenlies. Right now we are seated with him. You're like, I'm here in a pew. How can that be? You see, Paul gets at something. He gets at the very heart of Christianity. What is at the very heart of Christianity? Union with Christ. What does union with Christ mean? It means this, simply put, that whatever, try to get your mind around this, it will change your life. Whatever is true, and this is what it means to be a Christian, whatever is true of Jesus is also true of you. That's how close the connection is between you. It means that Jesus died for your sins. And in doing so, if you're a Christian, God treats you as if you died and paid for your sins. You ever think about that? That Jesus raised, was raised by God and seated in a place of honor. And if you are a Christian, God looks at you with the same honor and the same beauty and the same glory that he looks at Jesus. He sees you being just as great as Jesus is. Now some of you are saying, okay, I get it. It's, so, it's obvious that we talk about these things a lot in RUF. And so, okay. And my question back, is, is it really obvious to you? Because if it's so obvious, why in my eight years of ministry, in conversation after conversation with college students, even those from Christian homes and from Christian schools, when I press in those conversations and start talking about issues of conversion and issues of salvation, why is it almost automatically the knee-jerk response is, well, yes, I need to have better efforts in evangelism. Yes, I need to be more disciplined as I fight sin in my life. Or the response is, I know know I need to serve more and be more involved in my community. And my answer to that is, yes, of course, those are wonderful things, and I don't want to take away from those things, but how rare it is, friends, that the name of Jesus is ever even mentioned. Martin Lloyd-Jones was an old English preacher several years ago, and he was kind of a rough and tough kind of guy, tell it like it is, and he would be counseling people in his 
parish or in his congregation and very quickly in the counseling he would ask them are you a Christian and he says their response most of the time was well I sure am trying and in a way that only Lloyd-Jones could do he would look at them and say then you don't know the first principle of Christianity and he would say that Christianity has nothing and anything to do what you have done it has nothing to do with you trying but it has everything to do with what Jesus has done and if you're a Christian you are in him friends the first principle or the first element, if you will, of conversion that we see in this passage is a head-on collision, collision with a person. The first element of conversion is a head-on collision with the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see the second element of conversion is conviction. John Stott, he is a commentator that's writes he's a pastor as well he's not with us anymore he died a few years ago but he has written and done an incredible work on the book of acts and in his commentary he makes a great point he says that most people look at this conversion in acts chapter 9 and they see it as something that is very sudden and very abrupt that god has come into saul's life and changed him right there on the spot but he makes this observation that that is not necessarily the case. And he does it by drawing from Acts chapter 26. If you have your Bible, flip to Acts 26. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is telling again the account of his conversion to King Agrippa. And as he's standing before Agrippa, he adds a detail that he doesn't add in Acts chapter 9. And here it is. He says in verse 14, he says, The Lord said to him, Saul, Saul, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. What in the world is he talking about? What is a goad? G-O-A-D. A goad is a sharp tool a knife, a sharp object, or a sharp stick that a shepherd would use to keep their sheep on the right path and out of danger. You've probably heard the stories about sheep not being bright, and they would have a tendency to go towards maybe a cliff or run off a cliff that would kill them or hurt them very badly. And so in those moments, the shepherd would take a goad and stab them with it in order to get them on a safe path. Do you see what's happening? Jesus is telling Saul that he's been giving him little stabs to the heart all along the way in order for him to be convinced of the truth of Christianity. And what that tells us and indicates to us is that Saul's conscience bothered him way before the road to Damascus. When did it start bothering him? 
Well, I want to suggest it started bothering him in Acts chapter 6 and in Acts chapter 7, which George preached on a couple of weeks ago, the stoning of Stephen. In Acts chapter 7, it is the longest sermon that is given to us in the entire book of Acts. Where did Luke, the writer of Acts, get his information? Did you ever think about that? He got it from Paul. How do we know? Well, look at Acts chapter 8, verse 1. There's this cryptic statement that Saul was there watching it all go down when Stephen was stoned. Where am I going with this? Friends, the goad that Jesus was using in Paul's life was this. The stoning of Stephen in which he witnessed. And he looked at Stephen who was being martyred because he was a follower of Christ. And as the passage says, he had a face like an angel. And as he was dying, he even had the character to forgive those that were actually murdering him. Can't you just see Saul watching this all go down and his conscience saying, wow, could I die like that? Do I have faith as strong as Stephen's? Do I have character like that? So much so that I would actually ask forgiveness to those that were murdering me. So it begs the question, doesn't it? What are the goads that Jesus is using in your life right now tonight to prepare you and to draw you to Himself? Maybe it's a fraternity brother. Maybe it's a sorority sister. Maybe it's a good friend in your social circles whose life has been changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you've seen it. And you see their life that is now filled with so much purpose and so much passion and so much zeal. And it messes with you. When you're all alone, it comes into your conscience and it forces you to ask questions like, should my life be different? What would it be like if I came to Jesus? You see, and so God takes these goads and He brings them into our lives. But you know what ends up happening? We end up kicking against them, don't we? And one of the ways that we kick against them on our campus is, you know, it's not cool to stand out. It's not cool to be weird. It's not cool to be passionate really about anything. And so we kick against the goads that Jesus drops into our lives every single day. How do we kick against them? Well, we ignore them. Or we dismiss them. Or we deny that they ever happened. Or we even mock them, don't we? And if we don't mock them, maybe we try to soothe our conscience and drink away the conviction by going out to the square and getting absolutely hammered so we don't have to think about it and deal with it anymore. Friends, I know 
that this first year of college for some of you has been pretty bad. And I also know, let's get even more recent, last week, spring break, was a train wreck for some of you sitting in this room tonight. And only God knows what goes on in your conscience when you're all alone and how it eats you alive inside. Friends, here's what I want you to know. It's that the first step in Christian conversion, I loved the hymn that we sang earlier. Remember that line, the pain and pleasure by the cross are sanctified? That's Christianity. Because see, the first step in conversion is when you realize that the pain that Jesus has brought into your life, the heartache, the disappointment, the brokenness, the hitting rock bottom, Jesus brings that into your life. And if you're a Christian, it means that it's brought in for a purpose. That it's not meaningless. That God brings it in to prepare you to come to Him. That He brings those things into your life, these goads, if you will, that He stabs you with in order to wake you up out of your spiritual slumber. So that these goads and these things, whatever it is that God's brought into your life right at this moment, it's to act in a similar way as, let's say, spiritual smelling salts. You know what smelling salts are? You know, when a boxer or a football player takes a big hit and gets knocked unconscious or semi-unconscious and they run out onto the field and they put that chemical under their nose and it arouses them and kind of brings them back to mental alertness. Goads are to act as a spiritual smelling salt in your life. And they're to lead you to Jesus. Notice, lead you to Jesus. That's important. Goads do not lead to self-hatred. Goads do not lead to you beating yourself up. Goads do not lead to you getting in that cycle of shame over and over and over and over again. Goads do not lead to you heaping more guilt on yourself. They lead you to the cross. They prepare you and point you to Jesus. Has that happened to you? Better yet, is it happening now? Friends, I dare to ask the question. Could RUF tonight be a goad that Jesus is using to draw you to Himself and to cause you to run to Him. Elements of conversion. We see in this passage collision and conviction. And thirdly and finally, community. You know, it's interesting is if you look at this passage is that God never once let Saul be a Christian alone. He calls this guy and disciple in Damascus named Ananias, and he calls Ananias to go to him to bring him into his house and to heal him. Look at verse 13. It's very interesting, and we can't miss this. Ananias has a problem with it right away, doesn't he? Right away he has a problem with what God is asking him to do. He's saying, wait a minute, you're asking me to go to this guy who has killed 
Christians and to reach out to him and to love him, I'm not so sure I can do that. And here's the reason why I bring that up. Here's a point of application. We must never think that Christian community is easy. That it's going to be easy to love people that God brings into our community. Christian community is often messy and often very difficult and very hard. But look at verses 17 through 19. How does Ananias respond? He responds in obedience. He says, okay, God, I'll go. I'm not so sure about this. And I'm uncomfortable, but I'll do what you say. And look at verse 17. It's easy to miss. It says that Ananias laid hands on him. What does that mean? Well, it's not something magical, laying hands on another person. But if you have ever had someone lay hands on you, and particularly if you've ever had someone lay, you know, you can even feel that in a hug or an embrace, but if you've ever had someone lay hands on you and maybe pray for you, it's a very personal and intimate and loving thing that someone could do for you. It's a way of saying, here's what Ananias is saying, Saul, I'm with you. Saul, I'm here. But then look at the first words out of his mouth. The first words out of Ananias' mouth is amazing. Brother Saul. I mean, think about this. These are people... Saul more than likely killed some of Ananias' family members, but almost certainly killed some of his Christian friends. And the first words out of his mouth were, Brother Saul, can you imagine? That's the first words he hears from a Christian. And Saul knows what he's done. Can you imagine the impact that that had on Saul to hear those words? So how in the world could Ananias do that? How could he say something like that? He's scared, he's nervous, but he calls him brother. How does he do it? He does it because he understands the gospel of Jesus Christ. He understood who Jesus was. Ananias knew what Jesus had done, and he knew that anyone that came to him, no matter what you had done or who you were, when you came to Jesus, that he wiped your sins away. As far as the east is from the west. Friends, this semester, one of the things we've talked a lot about, particularly early on, this idea of the gospel going from our heads to our hearts and actually being made real to us. You know one of the primary ways that the gospel is made real to another person? One of the primary ways that that happens is when you... Go to another person and you embrace them and put your arms around them and you love them and you accept them and you give them grace unconditionally. When you do that for another person, you are Jesus to them in that moment. And suddenly, the Gospel goes from being this thing that we think about in our heads to really and truly and tangibly experiencing the grace and mercy of God from another person. You see, that's exactly what happens in this passage. When Ananias puts his arms around Saul, it is actually God putting his arms around Saul. 
Do you see that? It's actually God saying, Saul, rest in my arms. I know who you are. I know what you've done. And it doesn't matter. Because you're mine now. In August of, 18, of 1987, a plane crashed coming out of the Detroit, Michigan airport. It was a Northwest flight, and shortly after takeoff, it crashed. 155 passengers lost their life. And as the rescue workers were at the scene, attempting to rescue as many people as they could, one of the people they rescued was a four-year-old little girl named Cecilia. They were actually shocked and didn't think that she was actually part of the flight. They thought that she was a passenger in a car that had crashed as a result of the plane crash. And so they go and they check the flight records and the passenger list, and sure enough, on the passenger list was Cecilia. And then they started to put the pieces of the story together, and one of the things they learned is that when the flight started going down, Cecilia's mother actually took off her seatbelt and went over to her and wrapped herself in her arms around her daughter so that she could survive the crash. Friends, that's exactly what Ananias did. And that is exactly what Jesus is calling us to do tonight. He's calling us to move out into our community, to move out into our friend groups, and to put our arms around other people, particularly those people who have, in a sense, crashed and made a mess of their life, and to extend love to them, and to extend grace to them, and to extend forgiveness to them. Why? Why should you do it? Because of the Gospel. Because Jesus has done that for you. Jesus left His safety seat next to the Father in heaven and He came down into the world and He walked the earth and He wrapped His arms around you. Why? So that He could rescue you from sin's penalty and from sin's power. Let's pray. <clears throat>